Welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part two on the series on the Wright Brothers. On this episode, I'll be talking about the rest of the story, how they found success in flight, the company that they founded, how they became celebrities, and much more, the whole rest of the story. And then at the end of the episode, I have a bunch of my takeaways as well, of course, as always. Before we get started, just a reminder that if you want to listen to the End Notes episode that I'll be releasing shortly, it will be for subscribers only. It contains more information about their family, including their sister, Catherine. I'll talk more about how they became accidental fashion icons in Europe. I'll run through some of the speeches that Wilbur gave, and of course, even more insights and takeaways. So if you want to listen to the End Notes episode and support the show, just click on the link in the show notes. With that said, let's get into it and hear about the rest of the story of the Wright Brothers after this quick break. Nineteen oh one is the year of disaster for the Wright brothers. It's the year that Wilbur declares that man will not fly for a thousand years. They thought progress would be rapid year over year as they came every summer to Kitty Hawk to learn to fly. And instead, in their second year, they go backwards because they had tried to rely on the calculations of others, and those calculations have proved to be completely wrong and useless. So in nineteen oh one, as they come back, the brothers begin the journey from North Carolina to Dayton in near total despair. as the journey wore on, the silence gave way to weary talk about, all right, what are we going to do? And then as they began to talk about it, you know, small talk started to turn into big talk and they got themselves excited again, of course. And so by the time they get home, they're as excited about the prospect of flight as they had ever been and had a number of ideas of things they could improve and processes they could implement to speed up progress. And this little brief dip into despair and depression reminds me of the Steve Jobs quote talking about the early days of Pixar. Uh, And when things were not working out and they weren't finding product market fit quite yet. And he said, we would all get depressed, but not all of us at once. And I think it's really natural as a founder or anyone trying to do anything big to get depressed or to feel that feeling of, man, is this really going to happen to feel that despair just by virtue of what you're trying to do? If you're trying to do something hard, there's always going to be those moments. But the important thing is to have a partner or support network in place that can help pull you out of that funk through those difficult times. And that's what they have here. I mean, it's a little different from Steve Jobs in that they do both get depressed at the same time, but it's in talking to each other that they kind of bring each other out of it. And you see this, you see how quickly they go from despair to excitement by a letter from their sister, Catherine. Shortly after they get home, she writes to her father complaining. She says, quote, we don't hear anything but flying machine from morning till night. So they're back. And what they realize is that all these scientific calculations all the data that they had been given on wind coefficients and wind angles were wrong. And that's because they themselves, just in their short couple of years of flying, had generated more data, had been doing more flying than everyone else combined. So they wanted to get even more data than what they had already generated, and they needed to do it faster. And so above the bike shop, they build one of the world's first wind tunnels. Not the first, but it was ingenious in its ability to measure drag and lift and to do it quickly. So it takes time to rebuild a glider every time and then take it out and see how the wings need to change. But if you can do it in miniature, then you can make the adjustments much faster, right? So they build this wind tunnel, which is a box 16 by 16 inches. 
So, so pretty small and it's six feet long. It has a fan at one end and is open at the other. And so they build a bunch of miniatures, these little miniature gliders. They tested 38 different wing surfaces and this little fan could generate winds of up to 27 miles per hour. And so this just allows them to speed run the process of calculating the proper wing curvature and angle. It's still slow and tedious work, but if you need to get through a lot of iterations of these wings, it's much, much faster than having to switch up a glider and fly it a new time every day. And so they're hitting this hard. They want to optimize their wing as quick as possible. They're often up past midnight running these tests in this wind tunnel. It is, of course, to me, reminiscent of Thomas Edison. Go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't. But Edison reaches a point with the light bulb where he says, okay, I have this whole thing figured out except for the filament. And the only way now that I can figure out what filament will work for a light bulb is not with theory. I just have to test a bunch of different substances and see what works. And similarly, they're at a point where they just need to test a bunch of different variations of wings and this wind tunnel allows them to do that. And again, I think this is what allowed the Wright brothers to succeed. It is the combination of passion and enthusiasm, which mostly comes from Orville and really rational structured thought that comes from Wilbur. And you see that with the wind tunnel. It's, it's a very structured approach to how to fix the wings. Now, I said that a lot of people were working on flying machines at the time, and they're all having a really rough time. And enthusiasm for flight is actually waning. At a certain point, people just kind of throw their hands up and say, this is a waste of time. <laughs> Apparently, no one's going to fly. And that's because you have all these people declaring, you know, I've discovered flight and they have these big demonstrations and inevitably their flying machine fails. The chief engineer of the United States Navy, Rear Admiral George Melville, writes in an article that year, quote, a calm survey of certain natural phenomena leads the engineer to pronounce all confident prophecies for future success as wholly unwarranted, if not absurd. Where, even to this hour, are we to look for the germ of the successful flying machine? So in other words, he's saying, not only are we not successful, but we don't even have the germ of success. We don't even have a little inkling of success that we can build upon. And that's actually kind of true. I, I think he was accurate about the state of the aviation. It's not even an industry, but aviation experiments, except for the Wright brothers, right? That's the only thing that he's not taking into account. At the same time, there's this guy, Chanute. He had tried to be an aviation pioneer himself and had never quite worked out for him. And so he had become friendly with the Wright brothers. And now he tried to convince them that they were on better track than anyone else, which was true. And he also tried to convince them that they should forget the bicycle business and go all in on flight. And he says, you know what? I'm friends with Andrew Carnegie. Can I just raise tens of thousands, a couple hundred thousand dollars from him and convince you guys to quit your jobs? And they say, no, they turn him down. They like the independence that comes with working with their own money, which I think is interesting. So they improve their glider with the calculations that they made from the wind tunnel. And in 1902, returned to Kitty Hawk with this new improved glider. For one thing, this glider is much bigger. Its wings measure 32 feet by five feet, which is much larger than the previous iteration. And they have the opposite experience from 1901. It immediately becomes clear that their wind tunnel had yielded very good calculations and this glider flies really, really well. And so they're definitely headed in the right direction when Orville makes a big breakthrough. On October 2nd in North Carolina, they're, you know, in one of these great classic kind of fun innovation camps. They're on the beach in North Carolina. Every day they go out, they fly their glider. Every night they go into their little shack and uh, they stay up and they eat and they talk. 
and they're talking about theory and designs. And Orville is so amped, he accidentally drinks a little too much coffee. And so when everyone goes to bed, he's just laying in bed, tossing and turning and thinking. And while he's awake in the middle of the night, he has an idea. What if the rear rudder was movable? So up to this point, they are just manipulating the wings and this would give them an extra dimension of control, being able to control the rudder. And so in the morning, Orville tells one of their companions, check this out. I'm going to go tell Wilbur an idea and I guarantee you that we're going to get into an argument about it. Wilbur was kind of the Steve Jobs of the group. He loved to attack an idea just to make you defend it and see if it was a really a good idea. And so this is what Orville is expecting from him. And so he goes up to him in the morning. He tells him the movable rudder idea and then winks at his friend to kind of say, all right, here comes the brouhaha. And Wilbur sits there and thinks about it for a few seconds and says, that's actually a really good idea. And it was a really good idea. This was the last major control issue that they needed to figure out. With the movable rudder, they are soon able to make glides of more than 600 feet. And it's not just the distance that matters. It's what they could do for that 600 feet. Reading now from the Wright Brothers by David McCullough, he writes, they could soar, they could float, they could dive and rise, circle and glide and land, all with assurance. So in other words, they can control left and right. They can control their roll, kind of tilting left and right. And now they can control going up and down. And so as they closed up the gliding season for 1902, they were truly able to fully control their glider. So they can fly. All that was left was to add a power source. And this was kind of always the idea. First figure out the lift and the right wing shape, and then figure out control, how to keep the glider in air and get totally stable and, and know how to manipulate it in every direction. And then just add a power source and you're there. And so they start thinking, we have it. We have everything except for the power source. And that's all we have to figure out. Now that is easier said than done, right? Building the first ever plane engine and where that engine would come from is a very unexpected source. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter six, verse one, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And that is what I think of when I think of the United States of America in the early 1900s, it was just full of brilliant innovators, turn over a rock and you might find a genius. Well, it turns out one such genius was right under the Wright brothers noses and his name was Charlie Taylor. Charlie was a first-rate mechanic, and they knew that. He lived close by in Dayton, and he had been introduced to the brothers by a business associate, their landlord, actually. And so they meet him and say, hey, why don't you come work for us? And they pay him a little bit more than the factory does. So he goes and works for them, and he's a very good employee, trustworthy, proactive, and mechanically extremely gifted. He could figure out how to fix or repair or really build anything. And as the brothers were spending more and more time working on flight and spending time in North Carolina, they turned over more and more of their operations of the bike shop to Charlie until he was basically running the entire thing. So at this time, Charlie's running the bike business and he's a trusted associate. They knew he was a great machinist. And so he would be the one who would build their motor. First, they try to reach out to existing engine manufacturers, people building gasoline engines for automobiles and tractors. And they reach out to ask if they have anything meeting certain specifications that they have for this airplane, what will become an airplane. And essentially what the brothers needed was something that could give decent output. But the really important thing was that it be very light for an engine. And all the engine manufacturers come back saying, no, sorry, we, we can't build that. 
And this is nothing like what we would build. And that's because they are mostly, again, working on tractors and cars, right? So they're not really thinking about building a very light engine. They'd rather have a heavier engine with more output. And so since none of the existing players can do it, they ask Charlie if he can do it. Now, keep in mind, Charlie worked on bikes. The entirety of his experience with gasoline engines was that a friend had asked him a couple years previous if he could help repair his broken engine. That was it. That's all he had done up to this point. And they give Charlie the lightest of instructions. They don't even give him a full blueprint. They just kind of sketch out different parts uh, from time to time. And so they give him these rough sketches and tell him it needs to be no more than 200 pounds and deliver at least eight horsepower. And using the same metal lathe and drill press that they use to manufacture bicycles, he builds an engine that delivers 20 horsepower and weighs only 150 pounds. So he made it lighter than they needed with more output than they needed. And he does this, builds an engine from scratch, which he has never done before, meeting their specifications in just six weeks. I mean, I think this is absolutely remarkable. I think he is someone who deserves to be more well-known. I think he's emblematic of the kind of quiet genius that made the United States of America great. And Charlie's a character. He smoked 25 cigars a day. That's true. 25 cigars a day and constantly provoked and fought with their sister, Catherine. You get the impression that he was kind of a rough and tumble guy. No one really knew who he was then, um, even after the invention of flight, and no one really knows who he is now. And that didn't bother him. He thought the brothers gave him plenty of credit. He later said in an interview, speaking of the rights, quote, they appreciated that I had a part in giving the airplane to the world, though nobody made any fuss about it, and I didn't either. And I just think that's a cool quote that tells you what kind of guy he was, right? Like, yeah, I had a big part in giving the world flight. But no one made a fuss out of it. Neither do I. I think he deserves to be more well-known. I'm not saying the Wright brothers are overrated or anything. Like They are the geniuses that they are known as. Um, but I just think that he also played a pivotal role and one that is today mostly forgotten. I think every school child in America should know who Charlie Taylor is. So with the engine built, there's actually one more thing to figure out with propulsion, which is the propellers. Uh, right? So you have the engine that generates the power, but then you actually need to output it some way. And the propellers were very difficult to figure out. Initially, they had assumed that they could just use boat propellers. And it turns out those don't work at all. And so it was a doozy to figure out how they're going to build these propellers. Wilbur and Orville obsess about it day and night for weeks on end. And they often don't view it the same way. So in one incident, they got into a heated shouting match, each telling the other one that he was completely wrongheaded. And Catherine, in the middle of this argument, cries out, nearly hysterical, if you don't stop arguing, I'll leave home. And that quiets them down a little bit. And then the next morning, Charlie Taylor opens up the shop at 7 a.m. And shortly after he does, Orville comes in and tells Charlie that he thinks he'd been wrong and they should do it Wilbur's way. And then a few minutes later, Wilbur comes through the door and says, you know, perhaps Orv was right. So what had started as a major argument now flips and each takes the other's view. But through this process of passionate argument, they come to a really good propeller design. And so with that, they have the whole thing figured out. On March 23rd, they apply for a patent on their flying machine. And by the summer, they have everything built and ready to go. That year, on October 7th, 1903, one of their biggest competitors attempts to beat them to the punch. He was the head of the Smithsonian and had raised $70,000 to build his flying machine. By contrast, the Wrights had spent less than $1,000 on theirs total. 
This guy's name was Samuel Langley, and he had built it in secret and was set to unveil it at a big event where it would fly. And Langley invites observers and journalists and hundreds of people to show up and watch this launch and launch the world into the future of flight. And after hours of anticipation, Langley announces the launch. It takes off and promptly dives straight down into the river over which it was flying. He regroups and tries a second flight on December 8th. And if anything, his second attempted flight goes even worse than the first. He's completely pilloried in the press. He becomes a laughing stock. And it's kind of emblematic of what I was talking about before of this disillusionment with flight and with the idea that this can actually be accomplished on a short timeline. And it's interesting to me that this is, you know, a chance for the Wright brothers to kind of demonstrate how different they are. You know, this guy got all this money, had all these advantages that they didn't get, and yet he fails. And they're having much more success with just a fraction of the budget. And this could really be a chance to mock him and, and rub it in. And they never do. In fact, Wilbur said that the press's treatment of Langley was, quote, shameful. His work deserved neither abuse nor apology. In other words, like, not only do you not deserve to be made fun of, you don't even have anything to apologize for. And in fact, they went out of their way to praise Langley. And they went out of their way to praise anyone who was trying to fly. And I think that really shows uh, who they were and why they succeeded. You know, they weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it to beat others. They were in it because they loved flying. They loved the idea of flight so much. And so that's just cool to me to see that sort of elevated spirit. I also think it shows that they didn't let themselves get distracted, right? They're not looking over their shoulders. They're not trying to see what other people are doing, except as a way to inform their own approach. But they're, they're not the kind of people to go out and make fun of others who might fail where they succeed. So while this is happening in, through the fall and winter in Kitty Hawk, the brothers were getting ready to test a flying machine of their own. All their tests and calculations suggested that success was likely, but there was a big difference between the wind tunnel and the actual open skies. And we'll hear about the Wright brothers' pivotal flying tests of 1903 after this quick break. During the flying season of 1903, the brothers worked their way up slowly, as they usually did. They spent weeks gliding just to make sure that the wings of the plane were still in working order and to get some practice. They wanted to make sure that they were accustomed to steering before attempting the first flight. On December 11th, 1903, Wilbur attempted the first flight. They started the engines and Wilbur climbed aboard. It took off and he surged into the cold winter air. And then, almost immediately, he pulled too hard on the rudder, sending the flyer upward before it lost lift and plunged downward. The glider hit the sand only 100 feet from the starting point. The attempted flight was a failure. But the brothers were not downcast. They were actually elated. Everything had worked just how they wanted it to. There were no obvious failures in the engine or propeller. The only mistake had been Wilbur's. He was unused to flying with extra weight and had overcompensated. But this could be easily corrected on the next attempted flight. So they were encouraged that this is going to happen. The rough landing had damaged the plane a little bit, and it took two days to repair. So another attempt wasn't made until December 16th. This time, Orville would be at the controls. Conditions tended to get blustery in the winter, and the weather was not cooperative. Winds of up to 27 miles per hour were blowing on and off throughout the day. But finally, in the late morning, they think that the weather conditions are good enough that they're a go, and they're going to try it. flyer used a track to launch, 
and as it slid down, Wilbur ran to keep up beside it, his left hand resting on the right wing. The wind slowed it down enough that Wilbur had no trouble keeping up. It was slow going, but at the end of the track, the plane slowly lifted into the air, and Orville was flying. The ride was rough. It bucked up and down in heavy turbulence for the entire flight. And then, it was over. It only lasted 12 seconds and 120 feet. When later asked if he was scared during this first flight, Orville smilingly responded, there wasn't time. The boys went in to warm their hands by the fire and then resumed attempting flights later that morning. The next flight went 175 feet. The third went 200. And then finally at about noon, on the fourth test, Wilbur flew 852 feet over the ground in 59 seconds. A 12 second flight maybe could be doubted, but a one minute flight could not be. And even more impressively, he had complete control of the plane the entire time. One of their local North Carolina assistants, John T. Daniels later recalled, I like to think about that first airplane, the way it sailed off in the air, as pretty as any bird you ever laid eyes on. I don't think I ever saw a prettier sight in my life. The brothers and their companions huddled up to plan another flight for the afternoon. They planned to make the first flight to a specific destination. They were going to go to the lifeguard station on the beach. But as they were huddled together talking, the wind snatched up the untethered flyer, flipping it end over end. It was a total wreck. Nearly all the ribs of the wings were broken. But even the accident couldn't dampen their spirits. They knew the flyer could easily be rebuilt. Soon, back in Dayton, Bishop Wright received a telegram. Success. Four flights Thursday morning. All against 21-mile wind. Started from level, with engine power alone. Average speed through air, 31 miles per hour. Longest, 59 seconds. Inform press. Home for Christmas. Orville Wright. There have been a lot of other flyers who claim to have had the first flight, but this was the first flight of a piloted machine to take off under its own power, into the air in full flight, maintained airspeed, and landed at a point as high as that from which it started. It was a flight by every possible definition. The broken flyer would be put into storage and never flown again. It had one mission, take man into the air under his own power for the first time, and that was all it did. The brothers and their family began to notify the press, but, surprisingly, no one took any notice. Frank Tennyson of the AP and also the Dayton Daily Journal read the telegram and showed no interest, saying, 59 seconds, eh? If it had been 59 minutes, then it might have been a news item. What actually does get them some press is a fake story. One of the telegraph operators who had sent the telegraph back to Dayton told a friend who was an aviation enthusiast, and he concocts this fake story that says that the plane had one propeller on bottom for upward thrust and one propeller on back for forward thrust. And he says that they flew to 60 feet and they flew for three miles over hills and waves. And Wilbur's first words upon Orville's return were, Eureka! So this obviously fake account gets carried in the New York Times and Washington Post but nothing happens as a consequence, probably because most people could tell that it was fake. One person in Boston does recognize the importance of the announcement, and he's well-connected politically, and he tries to get the brothers put in touch with the War Department in Washington, D.C., but the Army completely blows them off, and they don't take them seriously. Even back home in Dayton, 99% of people think they are, at best, exaggerating. And so life goes on as normal. With basically no one the wiser, that man has accomplished the miracle of flight. So at the start of the year of 1904, the brothers slip back into work at the bike shop. 
and they alone are keepers of this secret that flight has been achieved. So throughout 1904, they quietly set about building a new flyer. This one is heavier and more sturdy than the 1903 model, and it has a more powerful and efficient engine. And they decide that they are not going to return to North Carolina anymore. The flyer can fly under its own power now. They think they don't really need the wind that North Carolina provides. They find a field just outside of Dayton that belonged to a farmer named Torrance Huffman, and he allows them to rent his field, but he doesn't believe in them at all. That's just good money. And he tells a neighboring farmer that the boys are fools. And at first, he seemed to be right. Without the North Carolina wind, the boys struggle to get back in the air. Their first test flight is scheduled for May 23rd, but it's months they don't actually get off the ground for a real flight until August 13th, when Wilbur finally gets off the ground and flies for more than a thousand feet. Part of the problem was the starting distance. The field wasn't that big. They didn't have a huge runway, and so they needed to get more power right at the very start. So they designed a simple catapult system that essentially launched them off a little ramp. And with the catapult in place, they were able to fly more than half a mile. And on September 14th, 1904, Wilbur managed to turn in a half circle, the first time this had ever been accomplished. And so all throughout 1904, these test flights are happening right in Dayton, and no one notices. In fact, a major station of the commuter trolley was right by the field, and none of these commuters notice that humans are flying right over their heads. James Cox, the publisher of the Dayton Daily News, remembers reports coming, quote, to our office that the airship had been in the air over the Huffman Prairie, but our news staff would not believe the stories, nor did they ever take the pains to go out to sea. Later, someone would ask the editor of that newspaper, the Daily News, why they hadn't reported on such a momentous occasion happening right on their front door, right under their noses. And he paused and said, quote, I guess the truth is that we were just plain dumb. One person who does take interest is this guy named Amos Root. He's a huge enthusiast for driving and automobiles. And so naturally that leads him to also take a big interest in flight. And he hears about what they're doing and he writes to them and he asks if he can come watch. And initially they basically say, thanks for your interest. Uh, we'll let you know, you know, don't call us, we'll call you. But he persists, he keeps writing them at one point writing, quote, excuse me friends, but I am so anxious to see that airship, I can hardly sleep at night. So eventually the brothers relent and they let this guy Amos come down and watch. He lived further north in Ohio, and he gets to see the first complete circle ever flown. And this is what he writes. He's a very excitable character. You can't help but love him. He reminds me of a hobbit. He's like this little, stout, excitable guy. Uh, here's a few quotes from his article about his incident observing flight. Quote, God in his great mercy has permitted me to be at least somewhat instrumental in ushering in and introducing to the great wide world an invention that may outrank electric cars and automobiles and may fairly take a place beside the telephone and wireless telegraphy. When it first turned to the circle and came near the starting point, I was right in front of it. And I said then, and I believe it still, it was one of the grandest sights, if not the grandest sight of my entire life. And you might be asking yourself, where did he write this? Where did his report come out? You know, the New York Times, the Washington Post? No, um, Amos Wright was a successful entrepreneur who had become rich manufacturing and selling beekeeping equipment. And he had started a magazine called Gleanings in Bee Culture. So the first credible eyewitness account of powered manned flight appeared in Gleanings in Bee Culture magazine. That's just an amazing historical fact. Save that one for whenever you're on Jeopardy. Root sent his article to a more reputable magazine, The Scientific American, and told them it could be reprinted at no charge, but they declined. And instead, their next article about flight was published a full year later, and it was titled The Wright Aeroplane and Its Fabled Performances. 
And the article basically calls them liars, says these guys are full of it. And the thrust of the article is, you are telling me that these guys are actually flying and they can't just convince anyone to go check it out. They have to get the news published in gleanings of bee culture. Like, come on, be real. There's no way this is real. And look, it's very stupid that the press took so long to pick up on this story. And I guess I'm kind of making them out to be the bad guys. But I should note that when the Wright brothers first started test flights in May of 1904, a bunch of Dayton journalists did come, did show up to cover the flights. But that was when they were having their issues with takeoff. And so all they saw was a dud. They saw the brothers try to fly, you know, get off the ground for like five feet and then kind of crash. And so that explains a lot of the skepticism. They had tried to do a big press event. It had failed. And so a lot of people had written them off. But I mean, by October 1904, the brothers are flying circles and S-curves. They're up in the air for minutes at a time. They'd flown in calms and in winds. It was a fully controllable, workable airplane that could work in almost any conditions. And they can't get any interest. Besides Amos Root, the first real interest, the first commercial interest, actually comes from across the Atlantic. The British military expresses interest. And so they send out some people to check it out. But the Wright brothers are very patriotic. So they reject this first offer. They refuse to show the officer who comes out to visit them any test flights and write to the War Department of the United States once again to offer to build planes for them. They say, hey, the British are asking us if we can build planes for them. Are you guys finally interested? And once again, they are rejected by the U.S. military. And so they decide to go back to the British military and re-engage. Wilbur writes, quote, it has for years been our business practice to sell to those who wish to buy instead of trying to force goods upon those who do not want them. If the American government has decided to spend no more money on flying machines till their practical use has been demonstrated in actual service abroad, we are sorry, but we cannot reasonably object. And so they begin serious negotiations with the British. In 1905, they make even more improvements and make a truly practical airplane for the first time. I mean, the 1904 flyer was a real flyer. It could consistently, you know, take them for long flights. It worked. But the 1905 flyer could actually get you places on a consistent basis. You no longer had to lay down. You could sit in it. It's sturdier, has a more powerful engine, and they're flying more than 15 miles at a time. So this is like, you know, if they wanted to, they could have sold this as a practical vehicle. This is actually the first time that they begin to write about how much they enjoy flying. I think before, it was such a harrowing experience that they were just focused on accomplishing their mission and you're laying down on the glider and you know, the wind is blowing and you're just struggling to see, it just seems like, you know, a tough process. But now they write quote, the sensation is so keenly delightful as to be almost beyond description. Nobody who has not experienced it for himself can realize it. It is the realization of a dream. So many persons have had of floating in the air more than anything else. The sensation is one of perfect peace mingled with the excitement that strains every nerve to the utmost, if you can conceive of such a combination. So all throughout 1905, they are improving their ability to fly with this new Wright Flyer, and they are in talks with the British government and then with the French government as well. Nothing actually materializes though, and in 1906, they kind of shift and they actually enter more serious discussions over an agreement with the French government, uh, the general idea of which is that the French will pay them 1 million francs, that's worth $200,000 for a single flyer, provided that the Wright brothers agree to come to France and conduct demonstrations, train pilots, 
And the machine has to meet certain requirements around altitude, distance, and speed. And it's really the Wrights beginning to enter these agreements with the French that starts to wake up the American press. That is when they really start to notice what these brothers are doing. And so finally in 1906, they start to get some favorable press. It is all, however, shrouded in mystery. In part, that, that is the fault of the brothers who are guarded about their trade secrets. So they don't want to show off what they're doing too much. So they'll let some observers come and see and they'll let articles be written, but they don't really want to open the kimono to anyone. So while the American press at this time is sort of cautiously optimistic and starting to say, huh, what's going on here? The French are incredibly hard on the rights. Uh, the French were aviation nuts. It was a total phenomenon in France. You have all of these aviation pioneers who are doing their own really interesting work. The Paris Herald writes an article entitled Flyers or Liars. And they write, quote, the rights have flown or they have not flown. They possess a machine or they do not possess one. They are in fact either flyers or liars. It is difficult to fly. It is easy to say we have flown. And there's this word that gets thrown out a lot in France, bluffers. Everyone's calling them bluffers. And in part, that's them kind of defending their own guys, right? We've got all these Frenchmen who are trying to fly. Um, so we're going to defend them and say that these Wright brothers must be bluffers. They're, they're saying they've flown. There's no way they actually have. And this is getting worse because the Wrights feel like they have proven everything to themselves that they need to. And so now they are really shutting down the test flights and there's just no reason for them. So the French public is skeptical. The French government is in negotiations to enter a contract. And so on May 18th, 1907, Wilbur goes to Europe. He's joined by a guy by the name of Hartberg. He's a Jewish American whose firm had contracted with the rights to sell their flyers in Europe. And I think the rights were very smart to partner with an outside firm that had expertise in selling to foreign governments. It's a very complex sale. There are politics involved and conflicting interests, even within these governments. They want to see the plane as is their right, you know, if they're going to purchase it. But at the same time, the rights, of course, realize they need to show off the plane, but they don't want to give away any secrets. So, you know, it's a little touchy, this sale. And Berg proves to be very valuable. But Wilbur also proves to be a great salesman for his part. He's not slick or smooth talking like Berg. He's in fact very direct and he comes across as intelligent, reasonable, and more than anything, straightforward and honest. He comes across as the kind of person that you would want to do business with. In fact, the idea is brought to him to pay a bribe to speed things up with the French government and he won't even consider it. He says, no, out of hand, won't hear it, won't talk about it. But as they negotiate further and further, it becomes clear that the French aren't actually going to do anything until the rights can demonstrate their flyer in France. And by this time, there is a Brazilian-born French aviator named Alberto Santos Dumas, who is actually conducting public test flights. And there's one who's even further along named Henri Farman. And Farman can actually fly in a circle. And in the meantime, the rights aren't demonstrating their plane. So it looks like they're getting passed by to the general public by these French aviators. Now, in reality, Farman's plane is nowhere near as good as the Wright Flyer, but only the Wrights really know that for sure. So the pressure is mounting and mounting. This whole thing takes a long time. But finally, in 1908, they get a signed agreement with the French, which spurs the US government to follow behind and sign an agreement of their own in the same year. So the Wright brothers go back to the US and they actually go back to North Carolina one last time to practice flying in anticipation of conducting test flights in France. 
They hadn't flown at all since 1905 at this point. So they needed the practice and they're really reluctant to do it in front of a crowd. So they're trying to practice flying basically in secret by going back to the Outer Banks, which was at the time, as we have said, very remote and very hard to visit. Well, this doesn't quite work. <laughs> they're, they're not able to keep the secret. Reporters flock to Kitty Hawk, to the Outer Banks, to see them. So the brothers practice, but they're intentionally keeping their flights very short. They don't want to pull the rabbit out of the hat quite yet. So they get their practice in, and then in the summer of 1908, Wilbur returns to France. He needs to find a place to actually fly the plane. Obviously, Paris doesn't have many open fields, so he has to look outside of it, and he gets an attractive offer from a guy named Leon Bollet. He's a successful industrialist, and he has a factory and a big open field in a nearby town called Le Mans. So Wilbur accepts his offer to help and goes to Le Mans, and he gets there and he opens the crate with the flyer shipped from the U.S., only to realize that the French had completely mangled and destroyed it in customs. It basically needs to be completely rebuilt. So Wilbur tries to employ some of Bollet's French workers who were enthusiastic, really wanted to help, but ultimately didn't have the skills necessary. So day after day, Wilbur Wright rebuilds the airplane by himself in Bollet's factory. He lived in very Spartan conditions. He actually sleeps in a shed with the flyer, with the airplane. He's so worried about people breaking in to either sabotage or spy on or even just take a peek at his plane. So he sleeps in this little shed the entire time. And then finally, on August 8th, he decides that the plane is ready. The locals could see that he was making preparations at the field. It was actually a, a racetrack, right? And so because it's a racetrack, it has grandstands, it has seats where you can watch. And so people start filing into the seats and sitting there to see what will happen. And so they start filing in in the early morning, you know, seeing that he, he might fly and they're watching for anything to happen. But Wilbur could never be rushed. He's in no rush. He's taking his time to make sure that everything is perfectly ready. At three in the afternoon, he finally wheels the plane out onto the racetrack and then proceeds to check it over and fiddle with it for three and a half more hours while the crowd watches impatiently. His sales guy, Berg, would later recall, quote, neither the impatience of waiting crowds, nor the sneers of rivals, nor the pressure of financial conditions, not always easy, could induce him to hurry over any difficulty before he had done everything in his power to understand and overcome it. And that was Wilbur, always very deliberate and meticulous. Well, finally, at 6.30 p.m. on August 8th, 1908, with the sun just starting to set, Wilbur turned his cap backwards and walks over to Berg, Bollet, and those around them, and quietly but confidently says, Gentlemen, I'm going to fly. He started the engine and propellers, sat in the seat, asked a mechanic if a certain adjustment had been made. He sat there for a minute, and then left his seat to check for himself to make sure that the adjustment had indeed been made to his satisfaction. Then he sat back down and took off. The flight lasted a little less than two minutes, during which he traveled a little more than two miles. The French crowd absolutely lose their minds. They are cheering, shouting, yelling, nearly hysterical. Men start shouting in French, this is the man who conquered the air. One of the French pilots who had conducted his own test flights and was in competition with the Wright brothers, who had been waiting around since the early morning, told a reporter, I would have waited 10 times longer to have seen what I have seen today. Another French aviator told a newspaper, we are children compared to the Wrights. Skepticism disappeared overnight. Newspapers all over Europe and the United States carried headlines declaring it a triumph. 
a French newspaper called Le Matin, writes, quote, The mystery which seemed inextricable and inexplicable is now cleared away. Wright flew with an ease such that one cannot doubt those enigmatic experiments that took place in America, no more than one can doubt that this man is capable of remaining an hour in the air. It is the most extraordinary vision of a flying machine that we have seen. And the writer there at Le Matin hit the nail on the head on what made the demonstration so special. It wasn't the height or the speed or the duration or any of those measurable technical milestones that impressed people so much. It was the control. Other aviators who took to the air looked like they were on the verge of death. They were just trying to keep the plane aloft long enough to set some new record. Wilbur's flight, on the other hand, looked smooth and fully in control. This was a plane not meant for arbitrary records, as others were, but the French immediately grasped that this was the only plane around that could produce consistent, safe, practical flight. This is the kind of machine that could get you from A to B. Wilbur becomes a huge celebrity in France overnight, but he doesn't let it affect him at all. He changes 0% and basically refuses to acknowledge his celebrity status. When crowds are gathered outside his window at the hotel in Le Mans, he does finally move from the shed into a hotel room. He will occasionally come out to the balcony and wave to them, and that is the extent of his playing into the hype. And it's like his refusal to be a celebrity drives his celebrity even more. The French love him for this. They, they love that he is this plain-spoken, humble American who just goes about his business. It totally works, and it plays into this trope of the frontier, you know, quiet, hardworking tinkerer who's able to innovate. In fact, the French love him so much that, you know, you're tempted to say that this story has no love interest because neither Orville nor Wilbur ever married in their life. But I think that the true love story of this narrative is that between the Wright brothers, especially Wilbur Wright, and France. You know, I've been talking about how much the French loved Wilbur. And it wasn't just one way. You know, when Wilbur wasn't working, he wandered the Louvre and took in the Tuileries. He was incredibly well-read and had a great grasp of art, literature, and history. Remember, I talked about that library that their father put together back home in Dayton. And so because of that library, he was very cultured. And as such, he could truly appreciate not just Paris, but France, the French, and the beauty of their history and their culture. And for their part, you know, as I said, the French loved Wilbur, everything about him. You get these great quotes from French journalists about Wilbur at this time. Uh, one, quote, Wilbur Wright is the best example of strength of character that I have ever seen. He is sure of himself and his genius. My favorite interaction actually is when Wilbur is awarded a gold medal from the French Aero Club. The presenter says in part, quote, Mr. Wright is a man who has never been discouraged, even in the face of hesitation and suspicion. The brothers Wright have written their names in human history as inventors of pronounced genius. And then Wilbur gets up and gives a speech in which he reciprocates the love. Uh, in part of it, he says how much the French have meant to them. Quote, for myself and my brother, I thank you for the honor you are doing us and for the cordial reception you have tendered to us this evening. If I had been born in your beautiful country and had grown up among you, I could not have expected a warmer welcome than has just been given me. When we did not know each other, we had no confidence in each other. Today, when we are acquainted, it is otherwise. We believe each other. We are friends. I thank you for this. In the enthusiasm being shown around me, I see not merely an outburst intended to glorify a person, but a tribute to an idea that has always impassioned mankind. 
I sometimes think that the desire to fly after the fashion of birds is an ideal handed down to us by our ancestors who, in their grueling travels across trackless lands and prehistoric times, looked enviously on the birds, soaring freely through space at full speed, above all obstacles, on the infinite highway of the air. Scarcely 10 years ago, all hope of flying had almost been abandoned. Even the most convinced had become duped, doubtful. And I confess that in 1901, I said to my brother Orville that men would not fly for 50 years. Two years later, we ourselves were making flights. This demonstration of my inability as a prophet gave me such a shock that I have ever since distrusted myself and have refrained from all predictions, as my friends of the press especially well know. But it is not really necessary to look too far into the future. We see enough already to be certain that it will be magnificent. Only let us hurry and open the roads. Once again, I thank you with all my heart, and in thanking you, I should like it understood that I am thanking all of France. And I say all of that, obviously saying more there than just talking about his relationship with the French, because I think that Wilbur was such a beautiful speaker. I mean, that is unbelievable to me. It shows that he was a true Renaissance man, you know, not just a mechanical genius, but had a, a wonderful grasp of the English language and of his place in history. Well, over the coming three months, Wilbur flew demonstration after demonstration, and thousands of people flocked to Le Mans to see each one. And the details of his existence in Le Mans are quite charming, I think. A stray dog starts following him around, which he eventually adopts and names Flyer. The boys from Le Mans also follow him around, and they are the only ones who can pronounce his name. Everyone else in France calls him Monsieur Vrit, but when he rides his bike around Le Mans, all the little boys follow him around yelling, Monsieur Wright, Monsieur Wright. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche referred to the French as having a feminine culture. And what he meant by that is that they take the ideas of people from elsewhere and incubate them. They mother them. They cherish them. So the great example is da Vinci, right? He was not truly appreciated in Italy, where he was from, but the French recognized da Vinci as a genius. They celebrated him. They enabled him. They did whatever they could to encourage him and his work. And the French did much the same thing with the rights. I find it to be one of the most charming things about French culture that they do this. Well, while Wilbur was carrying on this love affair with France, Orville was getting ready to conduct demonstrations in Washington, D.C. for the U.S. War Department, which had finally woken up to the Wright's accomplishments after Wilbur's triumphs in France. Because Wilbur had already been flying for a little bit, the reactions to Orville's demonstrations are a little more muted, but not much. Thousands of people flock to see the flights. It's a huge phenomenon and an enormous popular success for the Wright brothers. He pushes his flyer a little harder than Wilbur, and he keeps setting records, mostly for time in the air. His longest flight is an hour and six minutes, a pretty big leap from the 12 seconds of his first flight. But his pushing of the limits eventually has consequences. And on September 17, 1908, for the first time in nine years of flying, a right flying machine experiences a malfunction. And Orville and his passenger, a handsome and ambitious young lieutenant named Thomas Selfridge, suddenly dive from an altitude of 100 feet. Selfridge was killed, and Orville was badly injured. He had broken his leg, his hip, and four ribs. He's badly shaken, and it takes a long time for him to fully recover. His sister Catherine is a hero at this time and stays by his bed day and night to care for Orville and help nurse him back to health. Eventually, Catherine and Orville go out to France where they join Wilbur. They keep putting on demonstrations in France and also in Italy and Germany. When they all finally come back to America together, they are greeted in Dayton with the largest parade that the city had ever seen. More than 10,000 people come just to meet them at the train station before the actual celebration. There's a parade, 
speeches, marching bands, concerts. They are presented with the keys to the city. And amazingly, during those two euphoric days of celebration, the brothers from time to time managed to slip back into their old bike shop to get some work done. Making money had never been the point for the brothers, but their initial sales to the French and American governments had made the Wrights rich men. They did eventually start a company called, unsurprisingly, the Wright Company. They manufacture airplanes, as you might imagine, but they honestly spend about as much time enforcing their patents as they do actually manufacturing. It's a good business, and as I say, they were rich men, but never extravagantly so. They weren't like robber baron billionaires. Wilbur died of typhoid fever at only age 45 on May 30th, 1912. Orville would live until 1948 when he died of a heart attack. Orville sold the Wright Company in 1918 and it merged a couple times until it became the Curtis Wright Company. It still exists today and manufactures parts for airplanes. The company has a market cap of $7.5 billion. And as successful of a company as it is, this is not their main legacy and was never supposed to be. The Wright brothers did not undertake the project of powered flight to make money. They did it to fly, just to fly. And it's amazing to think that just 200 years ago, no one had flown, absolutely nobody. And now, in large part because of the Wright brothers, we are an airborne species. And their legacy can be seen in what came after. On July 20th, 1969, man landed on the moon. Space was very precious. They didn't get to bring a lot, but each astronaut got to carry one personal bag with a couple of mementos in it. And the first man to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong, was from Ohio, and he carried with him a piece of the original Wright Flyer. And it was a recognition of the truth that that landmark accomplishment never could have happened without Wilbur and Orville Wright. So what can we learn from the Wright brothers? I think there is so much. I have learned a ton researching this story. So I'll just key in on a few ideas. The first is this commitment to not change what got you there. Even when the brothers were receiving ecstatic celebrations in Dayton and France and all across the world, their true desire was to quietly get back to work. Even at their big celebration in Dayton, they're slipping back into their bike shop. It reminds me of, oddly enough, Genghis Khan. I think the main thing that separated him from other steppe conquerors is that he was never seduced by the empires that he conquered. He slept in a Mongolian tent until the day he died. He never gave up his original way of life. So Genghis Khan and the Wright brothers are alike in that way. They also never changed their lifestyle. Yes, when they became rich, they moved into a bigger house. But that was it. They didn't change their lifestyle. It also reminds me of the Rothschild brothers, who never lost their love of finance and investing even as they became enormously wealthy. Okay, lesson two is that constraints improve performance. The Wrights were smart not to take endless amounts of funding from Andrew Carnegie. They ended up spending something like 1% of what Langley spent on his failed monstrosity of a glider. And I think that their frugal budget actually helped them. When money is no object, sometimes you tend to overlook things. Whereas when you are on a shoestring budget, you are by necessity intimately familiar with every detail of the project you're working on. So I think it is often the best policy to do what the rights did, to stay lean, stay hungry, and operate within helpful constraints, financial or otherwise. Of course, there can be unhelpful constraints as well. I'm not saying that you need to compete with an arm tied behind your back, but especially when it comes to money, I think frugality forces creativity, which is a very good thing when you're trying to innovate. My third takeaway is to break down problems and solve them piece by piece. I think it's overwhelming to think about 
how you would create the first powered flying machine from scratch. But if you break down the problem into its parts, balance, lift, and power, then it starts to seem more approachable. You know, you start to think, okay, well, all we have to do is design a glider for the lift, add some controls for the balance, and then we just need to add a lightweight power source at the end. And that's exactly what they did, obviously. And so when you are up against a really tough problem that seems impossibly difficult, just break it down. Say, what am I actually looking at here? What are the constituent problems that it breaks down into? And then you don't solve them all at once. You solve them one by one, if you can, just like the Wright brothers did. And then my fourth takeaway is just that anything is possible. This episode made me so proud to be an American. And I think even if you're not an American, there's this pride you can feel in human ingenuity. I think the Wright brothers showed so much grit and determination. You know, everyone around them was failing at this problem of flight. And for a time, they were failing as well. And no one thought that they were the ones who would be able to pull it off. A couple of bike mechanics from Dayton, you know, on the frontiers of America. And they didn't pay attention to any of that noise. They didn't engage with it. They didn't try and refute or shut down the haters. They just put their heads down and did it anyway. I want to resurface a quote from John T. Daniels, who was that local from Kitty Hawk who helped them from time to time. And he said, it wasn't luck that made them fly. It was hard work and common sense. They put their whole heart and soul and all their energy into an idea. And they had the faith. And that's a pretty simple statement, but I also think it's an incredibly profound formulation of what it takes to accomplish the seemingly impossible. Work hard, have common sense, put your heart and soul and all your energy into an idea, and have faith. That's something that some of the Frenchmen who interviewed them highlighted as well. This faith that the Wright brothers had in their mission and in their ability to accomplish it. And if you do those things, I think you can accomplish anything. You can accomplish the seemingly impossible, just as the Wright brothers did. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are a subscriber, tune in in the next couple days to hear Wright Brothers' end notes. Until then, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.